It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into another edition of the Skinny Podcast, the Potpourri Edition. I'm Richard Skinner from Local12 and Local12.com. I'm the digital sports editor and columnist, along with Rick Broering. And as always, it is presented by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati. We talk about uh, local topics, which uh, I think our first local topic will probably also trend into a national topic. But we do some national topics, and of course, we have an obligatory wacky story that usually involves ghosts at the end. I try not to figure out what we're doing with that. I kind of let it let it breathe and come to me. And I'll let Rick get to that. So I know we've got a wacky story. I just don't know where the story's going to go. And for those of you watching on video, yes, I have a broken pair of glasses. I'm the guy that goes to the dollar store and gets uh, five pairs at a time and breaks them one by one and broke this one as I was coming in today. But I can't see without them, Rick, so I'm going to go with the broken glasses look. Uh, good enough for me, Skinny. We're I may go with a monocle at some point. Oh, that'd be a great look for I you, just, especially I, doing ghost talk with a monocle. Monocle the ghost talk. Monocle's, and a pipe. Monocle And a pipe. Pipe is great for ghost talk. I don't know if... Sinclair will let us do that. I don't know if that's a good company policy. Yeah, I don't have to light the pipe. I can just have the pipe for a prop. Bubble pipe. Bubble pipe. Bubble I like pipe it. would be there excellent. There we go. We'll go with that. All right, Skinny. Let's start off. Uh, Going to be college basketball heavy today. And, of course, the big news around Cincinnati and nationally. Mick Cronin, who led the Cincinnati Bearcats to nine consecutive NCAA tournament appearances, agreed to a deal on Tuesday to become the next head coach at UCLA. Cronin was 296 and 147 in 13 years at Cincinnati, seven in the Big East, and six in the AAC. He reached the second weekend of the tournament once in 2011-12 when the Bearcats made the Sweet 16 as a six seed. What do you think Mick Cronin's legacy will be at Cincinnati, and do you think it changes five to ten years from now? Yeah, those are two good questions. I think his legacy should be a guy that took over a mess, stabilized the program, and had success. Not March success, but overall had success. And again, he took over a mess. One scholarship player. Um, no recruiting for from Bob Huggins at the end of his tenure. Andy Kennedy was an interim, so he didn't recruit, and, and no reason he should have recruited. Um, so he had to really build this from almost scratch. And oh, by the way, they just happened to be in the Big East at a time when the Big East was arguably tougher than it was is today, and today it's a pretty good conference. And they weren't spending nearly as much as yes. the other teams, and their Correct. facilities were, we're getting we're, yeah, outdated. By, by far. So I, I would hope if, if, you're, if you're smart enough to have followed his career there at UC that you would look at that legacy and go, hey, he turned us right, he turned the ship around and had us at least a consistent national player. Um, I, I, I'm not, I can't argue the lack of success in March because it is, it, it's a, it's a dyed-in-the-wool fact. The one thing I will tell you is, you know, for all the hand wringing of Mick not making it out of the out of the first weekend um, during his tenure, other than one time, last eight years from Bob Huggins. You know how many times I think I think you know the answer, but I don't think many people think about this. His last eight years at UC, how many times he made it out of the first weekend? Once, once, very similar one time in that regard. All, exactly, to, almost to a T. So um, now I do think it, his legacy or the perception of him will change in the next five to ten years, one way or the other, because. Um, there may be a coach that is able to get to the second weekend a couple of times, and there also may be that coach that comes in and goes two years without going to the NCAA tournament whatsoever. So I, I do think it'll change. And if that coach doesn't do that, you can point to Mick and go, hey, right or wrong, he kept getting you there. This guy can't. Or this new guy, see, told you that guy got it done that Mick couldn't do in March. So I, I do think that that changes. But I would think at the very least, you do look at him as a guy who's a Cincinnati guy, a UC product who came in and turned your program back in the right direction when it was absolutely at the depths of despair. Going forward, I think his legacy is dependent upon what the next coach does. Do they do they get this thing to the next level right. quickly? Because if so, then people probably don't look back too fondly upon McCronin. 
does this thing go south badly? Because then people will say, we really underappreciated Mick Cronin. At the same time, I think it's dependent upon what Mick Cronin does at UCLA. Yes, right. If he flames out at UCLA, people are going to say, see, he really wasn't an elite level coach. But if he gets UCLA to the next level, they're going to say, look, he didn't have the resources here. He did a great job with what he had, and he was an elite coach when he got that type of talent and those types of resources. He did. He, he, yeah, he, it'll be looked on. Look, he did what he could do at a top 25 program as opposed to if he does something great at UCLA. See, he was always a good coach. He just didn't. He wasn't good enough. Yeah, the program wasn't quite there to get that level of player in, but UCLA is, and look what he did. And you're right, and vice versa is. If not, it'll be, see, told you. And I think his is more dependent because it's a complicated legacy right now as things currently stand. I don't. I think the only take that's wrong about Mick Cronin is that he was terrible. Right. Or that, or maybe that he was an elite coach. I think any yeah, extreme I don't think is one of wrong. Those. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anything else I can agree with. If you're a fan right now of UC and you're saying, I'm I'm happy to be getting rid of him. He he did a good thing by rebuilding the program and stabilizing it, but he had maxed out. We can do better. I I want to take the chance of trying to do better and, and raising the the ceiling of this program. I would totally understand that. At the same time, if you're a UC fan today who is totally distraught about this and think we're not going to have it as good as we had it for the last nine years, going to the tournament every year, guaranteed and and competing for AAC titles pretty much every year. I get that too. Like both of those stances right now make sense to me. And that's why I think it'll be pretty dependent on what happens over the next five to 10 years with both Mick Cronin's career and the UC program. That'll shape a lot of how people look back at Mick Cronin's legacy. Yeah, this is probably not a great parallel for me to draw because, because his tenure ended horribly, but is it almost the Marvin Lewis scenario where you knew he was probably good enough to continue to get you to the playoffs, but never obviously won a playoff game. And then his legacy ended obviously with the last couple of years being awful and not making the playoffs and, and those things. So it does change a little bit, but is there a parallel there that look, the devil I know did a pretty good job in an organization that traditionally leading up to him over a decade or so had not done a very good job. Now the flip side is I just want something new, anything new. And I think there is a faction of the fan base that's I look, I don't care. I know what he did. And I, I you know what? I, I, I won't tell you I I I hated him as a coach, but I, I just I I want that guy that just a breath of fresh air that can get my team deeper in March because that's what you're measured by. I, I get all of those takes. But I think you're right. The one thing is you can't say he did a horrible job at Cincinnati. Yeah, and, and I, I, again, either extreme, I think. It, he was elite, he was great, he did no wrong here. Well, there were definitely some shortcomings, sure. I think, during his tenure. Um, but on the flip side, if you just think he was awful this whole time, you're an idiot too. I mean, you have no idea. What do you think about the way this thing came crumbling down, the relationship between him, UC, Athletic Director Mike Bone? It's being talked about a lot right now, and I think there's a lot of finger-pointing going on, and probably a lot of that depends on who you align with. Do you think... Mick Cronin is a great coach and you needed to keep him, well, then you're probably mad at Mike Bone. Do you think you may be able to do better and he's maybe not the greatest coach in the world? Well, then you probably think Mick Cronin was looking for a way out and Mike Bone did things the right way. What was kind of your take on how this whole thing came crumbling down over the, well, I mean, depending on who you talked to the last six months to... There's a lot of layers to it. Number one, we've talked about this. A, you only have so much money at UC. You just do. I mean, you're not a blue blood program that can afford to just continue to pay into the stratosphere for coaches. If you'd gotten in the Big 12, maybe you could have, and you probably should have and would have up, up the ante. But you're, you're landlocking the AAC right now. There's only so much money to go around. So at some point, you've kind of you've, you've hit the ceiling of what you can pay. Can you give a little bit more? Yeah. Can you maybe add another year 
onto the end instead of it being a four-year extension. It's a five, whatever, just to give a coach a little more um, a little more security. Can you do those things? Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, but I do think that that either Mike Bone came to a point of saying, you know what, I'm I, I I'm not paying any more for this. I can't pay any more for this. Um, I won't mind if I have to move on and get my guy. Because let's face it, right around Mick is Mick was not his guy. Now I don't. That doesn't mean anything, but um, you know, maybe it came to a point for Mike where I, I just, I need my guy. I've, I've reached the stage where I can't pay anymore. I'm tired of dealing with this. Um, the other side is, you know, perhaps Mike should have gone to Mick at least in good faith earlier on in the process. And says, look, I can get you a couple more years on the back end. I can get you a couple more hundred thousand dollars. I, 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 that's the best I can do. I want you to be my coach. And it doesn't sound like that took place. So one of two things: either Mike screwed this up royally in that regard, or it came to the point of. I can't. I'm tired of it. I'm not gonna. I'm done with it. If you want to stay, stay. If you don't, move on, and I'll get another coach to come in here. And for Mick's sake, I get it too. Look, I want to feel loved. I want to feel wanted. I've got a blue blood program, and I don't think they're quite the blue blood they were, but they're still a blue blood program that wants me. That, again, the cost of living will be factored in here. It wants me for some more money. Um, it's giving me a six-year deal. Six-year deal is a pretty good deal, to be honest with you. I, I got to take it. If I don't, I'm going to lose face with, with everything that I stand for. I'm going to take it. Now, he may be sitting there in Westwood right now and going, gosh, boy, I, do, do I really want to do this? Well, I got to do it now. I, I really wonder because, I, again, I think he, he took a lot of pride as a Cincinnati guy being the head basketball coach at the University of Cincinnati. A lot of pride in that. And I think it's tough to swallow no matter how much more money you're getting or going to a Blue Blood program to turn the page on that. So I, I know there were some UC media members and certainly some UC fans that told me I was dead wrong when I sort of reported what I had been hearing about the, the situation as it unfolded. Um, but mostly that was coming from other schools regionally around this area and, and coaching contacts that I have there and sources. And, you know, what I was told was essentially that Mick Cronin has been telling his people for a while now. And if you follow social media, like his brother and other people who kind of tend to be his mouthpieces, it kind of added up. They were talking a lot about what other, you know, his brother was constantly tweeting about what every other coach in the AAC was making when they got a new deal and stuff and pointing out how underpaid Mick was that Mick ever since the fall has really been wanting out and has had decided that they didn't come strong enough with their offer when they, they made, they gave him an extension an offer for an extension that he saw as an insult this fall. And ever since then, He's wanted out and didn't see this as the place for and him. And that's where I go back to, Rick, though. It's one of two things for Mike Bone. Either you didn't read the tea leaves correctly, or you really did just say, look, I've reached my point of either you take it or you don't, and I, I'm okay if you don't. Well, I think there's another reason to maybe defend Mike Bone here that we haven't heard brought up a lot at all. There's something that people are forgetting about that was also going on last fall when all this is being talked about. And even when you look at what Mike DeCourcy said in that article, it basically lines up with this exact timeline, the, the stuff that... Is, let's face it, coming directly from Mick if Mike DeCourcy is writing. Sure. Larry Davis was, they were just finding out that Larry Davis had been coaching there for the last year because Mick fought to keep him on staff when he knew he had done what he did on that plane and those charges were just coming about. So they didn't know what exactly well, they're facing because they had been lied to the whole way about what was going on with Larry Davis. Those are, you remember the awkward, all of a sudden it gets dumped in on, on an email that he's retiring. And then you come to find out weeks later, well, he really didn't retire on his own. They, they had him, to force him, him out, out. But yeah. Mick didn't want him to do that. Mick didn't even want him and, to get rid I, of him. He I was do, defending Larry yeah, Davis the whole way. Yeah, and I do get way. some of that if you're Mick. If, if, if he's your guy, I think you do go to bat for him as much as you can. So I can't blame him. I'm, At the same time, I don't blame the athletic director if he said, look, 
dude, you you put us in a bad spot here. We look really bad with this. Plus, the problem is, since they've been downplaying it this whole time to keep Larry Davis on staff, at that point, the administration probably doesn't know what else is about to come out in court. So they could think this thing could get even worse, potentially, and they could have a lot of egg on their face, and that would be a direct result of... Mick fighting to keep Larry Davis employed there. So, and not only that, but he also fought to get him bonuses to make up for some of the money that he was essentially going to lose. And there was some things going on. Mick was fighting for his guy. And I think that fractured the relationship and Mike Bone and the administration finally saying, we got to get this guy out of here, fractured some of that relationship. And it all lines up with the timeline that everyone is kind of pointing back to, which was this fall when they offered that extension that he saw as an insult. So I think there's, UC has a leg to stand on here for not wanting right. to offer him the world this fall. And, and I go back, I, I don't think Mike Bone fought hard to keep him. I would kind of agree with that. I Well, I, look, here's the thing. The, the people that have been reporting that he was, they were trying to work towards an agreement like recently over the last two weeks. And I heard as recently as this weekend at the Final Four, he wasn't speaking to Mike Bone about negotiation. So, and well, I think part of Mike's public stance on this was was the article that Mike DeCourcy wrote, and he came back and said, "No, that's a hatchet job." You're also trying to save face there too, right? With your fan base, that look, of, hey, I'm trying to do what I can for my guy. Of course, but what I was told about that whole Mike DeCourcy article when it came out was that was Mick pointing the finger because he knew he was going to leave, whether it was the, the UCLA job, but also LSU if that opened up. Right, but boy, that's a that's a heck of a hand to play. Because you almost didn't get the UCLA job, and Arkansas filled its job, and LSU may not come open. So, but, but you had a contract at UC. It's not co- like correct, you were but, out of a job. But so you I, could, let's just say this next year, you don't. Let's say you go twenty and ten, and you don't make the tournament. I don't think that was going to happen. But let's just say, for argument's sake, people come knocking again, and suddenly your contract ran out. I think it was running out on what March. Well, I know there was probably some extensions at the end of it, but I think officially it ran out March first, twenty twenty. Yeah, so what are you what are you asking? Do no, people well, come do, does he still a hot name? Yes. Well, probably not, but that doesn't I mean that, he's not That's losing his a, job at Cincinnati. No, They're not no, no, forcing out. So he has, so he has no downside to try and put some pressure on Mike Bone to right, up his yeah, contract okay, and enough. get more money out right, of him. Fair enough. Or but but basically what I told it wasn't about that. It was never about that. And if you look at the money that he took at UCLA, I did. I put the math out there yes, on Twitter yesterday. It's about a th- the equivalent of making a hundred thousand dollars more. Break break that down for people. I don't. Want, you don't need to go into a deep dive, but, but I thought it was really interesting. Just because the taxes are different for one. Yes, right. So, so you're paying a lot more in tax. Cost so of living is way different. The for different. But then the cost of living, the the equivalent of what he was making here, taking home here, would be about the equivalent of one eight in California, and what he's going to be making now after taxes and and take home, and it's going to be like one nine. So it's about a hundred thousand dollar difference. So, I mean, I don't think it was ever about the money with, with him. I think everything I had heard was true. He wanted out since the fall. He the Mike DeCourcy article was him pointing the finger at Bone on the way out, making it clear I want to be at Cincinnati. I take pride in Cincinnati, and I do love Cincinnati. But they don't want me here, and they haven't done enough to keep me. I think that's exactly the message he wanted to send. And I don't think they were ever close to coming through with the with a new extension this past weekend or any time prior to that since last fall. All right, Skinny. Cronin's new deal will pay him $24 million over six years at UCLA. He was making $2.2 million per year on his current deal at Cincinnati. UCLA fired Steve Alford at the end of December after he compiled a 124-63 and record in five-plus seasons with four trips to the NCAA tournament and three trips to the Sweet 16. UCLA made a run at Tony Bennett, Matt Painter, John Calipari, Rick Barnes, and Jamie Dixon, among others, before arriving on Cronin as their guy. Do you think this is a good hire for UCLA, and how do you think Mick will perform at the highest level of the sport? Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's, that's the most interesting part because it feels like he's just been rooted here in Cincinnati, right? That, that 
Um, and part of the Cincinnati thing is there are some some handcuffs when it comes to recruiting. I mean, the, the arena has been a handcuff. The locker rooms have been a handcuff. The, the fact of when he has to go out and recruit and has to go commercially can become a handcuff. Um, you know, the league is a handcuff, and it's also a blessing because it's not a great league. Or it hasn't been a great league, but it's also a handcuff because you're not recruiting to a Power 5 conference. You're recruiting to a second-tier second conference. Um, and he's done a very good job of identifying players. The, the big question is, can he recruit at that elite level at UCLA? Um, I think you've said it before. You think that just about anybody can, and I don't want to put words in your mouth because you're going to make your own point here, because it is UCLA. It's still a very rich area. Um, you know, if you just go into the Southwest, it's it's a rich area, for goodness sakes. So um, I do think he's in a league that, let's face it, is not very good right now. So it's I don't think it takes much. And by not very good, you mean literally worse than the AAC this yes, season. Yes, and that that's statistically accurate. I mean, it's it was a bad league. And it doesn't feel like it's getting any better. I mean, feel like if you talk about coaching care, it feels like in that league, it feels like every two years there's coaches leaving and coming and coming and going. I can't even tell you who Cal's coach is today. I know they got rid of their guy. Maybe they didn't make a hire yet. Um, I, I mean, look, Bobby Hurley may be leaving Arizona State to go to St. John's, right? Right. So there's another one leaving the league that actually, to Bobby Hurley's credit, has injected some life into the Arizona State program, and, and they've had some consistent success. Arizona feels like it's a sinking ship because of all the stuff that's gone on off the court. Uh, so I I think for him, you go into a blue blood program, into a uh, into a Power Five league in a rich recruiting area. I think you have a chance to have instant success. I, I really believe that, and and so. Uh, the, the key thing is, will his style play with those recruits and that fan base? It probably does if you continue to win at a high level. Um, I, yeah, I do think he's got a chance to have success. So you you would say good hire? Yeah, um, yeah. What, what, yeah. Give a letter grade. What would you say if you're a UCLA fan? B minus. B minus? Yeah, B minus. I mean, it's a proven coach with a proven NCAA or proven history of getting teams to the NCAA tournament. Now, that's not a UCLA measuring stick. I'm not sure the Final Four is either. Just go ask Ben Howland. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look. UCLA, it's so funny because they do, they throw the wide net out for the big names. Where John Calipari was never coming to UCLA. He wasn't. Brad Stevens has got it. He's not coming to UCLA. Tony Bennett, you could argue, might have if, let's just say, they'd have flamed out. But then would that look like a good hire for UCLA? You got the flame out, coach, man. Right. Um, so the thing is, it, it, it does feel like this is like the 13th choice on the list, though, right? It felt like... I don't boom, even think boom, it feels boom, like it. Boom, I think boom, it really boom. is about well, I haven't Well, I haven't counted them all up. I'm probably about 10 Well, I mean, the most interesting thing to me was after it came down to last week's story of Jamie Dixon, Mick Cronin, Jamie Dixon's out, then, okay, it's got to be Mick Cronin. Suddenly, there's a flirtation with Rick Barnes. It feels like, well, wait a minute. You you actually didn't even want your, your second final choice after you went through all the other guys initially. You were trying to go somewhere else with the equation. It feels like UCLA is very unprepared for this stuff, to be quite frank. Yeah, and UCLA insiders are reporting that um, as of Monday, they thought Jamie, the Jamie Dixon thing was back on. They thought they had <laughs> negotiated it, gotten to the point where everyone agreed upon the buyout. UCLA was willing to pay the buyout, but then TCU wouldn't come off. I guess somehow the way it was worded, Jamie Dixon actually had to pay the buyout back to them so where if UCLA couldn't just give him the money because he would be then be taxed on that money right. and it just cost him a huge chunk so basically TCU had worded that contract in a really strong position for them where they had all the leverage and they refused to negotiate on any of it basically now, I, good I, for I, them I, to be honest I would have thought that this job would have given gotten Mick at least five million a year on the average more than the four million a year on the average I would agree. I mean if you were I, willing to pay Calipari eight a year plus whatever other perks supposedly they were throwing his way and you were at least at least 
trying to negotiate some level of a buyout with TCU. Maybe it wasn't going to be eight mil. Maybe you thought you could. I, we can pay six, and you were going to probably have to at least pay him at least pay him five, right? right. If not more. Right. That, when I saw the contract details, I thought that feels small to me. It's low. I mean, let's. Fi- I would have thought his ego would have needed a raise. And this isn't really a raise. I mean, this is about even money uh, when you look at it. Like I said, it's about $100,000 difference. So uh, now maybe they did something in terms of housing allowances or anything to right. make it easier. And a lot of schools too. do some stuff like that. So, But even still, this isn't like significantly more money. And really, just from an optic standpoint, seeing after all the offers they had extended to all these other people and they're willing to pay a $10 million buyout to get Jamie Dixon and then pay him $6 million a year or whatever, for you to then accept $4 million, it's definitely like an ego thing, you know? I mean, you're definitely looked at upon as a lower-level coach compared to those other guys that they were considering. I think I think B-minus sounds about right. I think if you're looking at realistic options for them, Mick Cronin was maybe not the best that you would hope they could do, but in that conversation, he was one of the first names that they should have been looking at. Now, I do think it feels like we're in weird times that UCLA can't afford Chris Beard. You know, that you can't go and grab the t- coach from Texas Tech who just led his team to the to the championship game, that you can't afford to pay a buyout and get and get him to, interested in your job. Like, I understand how the math works out and everything, but it feels like a weird time where that's not something UCLA can accomplish. Yeah, the, the one thing I would say as far as, I'll give you that part, but, but the one thing for UCLA, it wasn't like you went and got some young up-and-comer here that you're just kind of, you do have a guy that's gone to nine straight NCAA tournaments. And there is, that that is a pretty nice level of success. For sure. To sell to your fan base. Now, but I know your fan base can look and go, well, he doesn't get past whatever. Okay, but again, when we're looking here, you're, you weren't getting Cal, and you weren't getting you weren't getting your first seven or eight choices. So when we talk about this being choice 13, is that fair? Well, again, it's probably, it's probably not fair in terms of their realistic options, but I do think it's a weird world where UCLA can't command a big splash name, that they can't get, you know, not Calipari and maybe not even a guy like Tony Bennett, but at least sort of the next hot name at a high major because UCLA is a blue blood type job. It is up there with the UKs, the Dukes, the Carolinas, the Kansases. It is that type of job. So the fact that they can't go get a hot name, that they have to kind of settle for two names and Jamie Dixon and Mick Cronin is their realistic top guys. Those are both kind of second tier guys for a job like that. I'm sorry. They just are. I don't know. I mean, with Steve Alford, I mean, just because he was a great player, he's never been a great coach. No, I would I would agree with that. I, I think most people saw that as not a great hire for them. Okay, but but I mean I I just think like I think even like the last few years, had you hired a guy like Archie Miller, there was a lot of pop behind his name. I think Chris Mack had like a lot of people wanted those guys. I don't think McCronin was wanted across the country by anyone who was going to be making a hire this year. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I mean, I think you saw that with other people who made their hire without really considering him when he was openly saying. He wanted out of Cincinnati. Yeah, I, I just go back to, I I don't think the UCLA job is what it once was. I just don't. It's not, but it's also, a lot of jobs are, how easily can you win there, right? I think he's got a great chance to do that. And that's the thing. A UCLA, golden opportunity UCLA, to do that. You, you can win there so easier than maybe any job in the country right now. He wins for two years. Somehow Luke Walton stays for two more years as Lakers coach, and LeBron says, I like that little guy. I'll bring him on and be my coach, but for my last couple of years as Lakers coach. You know what? If that happens... I will remember this moment. I will absolutely pull this back up and we will post that video everywhere because that is going to be incredibly viral if that somehow happens. Well, Luke Walton looks like he's going to survive, right? Because Magic got whacked. I would put that on the like 
the most insane sports things that have ever happened if Mick Cronin ends up being LeBron's hand-picked there choice go. for the Lakers. That, w- that would be awesome. Uh, so what, what kind of grade would you give the hire? B-minus? You, you, I think you're right about okay. B-minus because I think out of the realistic names they could have gotten, he wasn't the top one, but he was in that top three or four right. names that you're going to think of. So I think they did a pretty good job. The funny thing is, after all this is said and done and, and they really did a terrible job handling the entire process – I think they ended up with about the type of coach I expected them to get when this whole thing started. So yes. I don't think it ended up being a terrible result for them. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. All right, Skinny. In theory, UC returns everyone except for Kane Broom and Justin Jennifer from a team that finished 28-7 and last season and made the tournament as a seven seed after winning the AAC tournament. Who do you think Cincinnati will target as its new head coach? Well, I mean, you're silly if you don't make a call to John Brandon, right? I mean, you're just, you're just, you're just silly. Um you know, the Nick Van Exel name is interesting, and, you know, Memphis kind of went outside the box with Penny Hardaway. Nick has cut his teeth as an NBA assistant coach. I still think that transition can be somewhat difficult. Um, I, obviously, you know, he's a name recognition for UC fan base. I think you can sell him. You can win the press conference, right? You can win the press conference because you bring it home one of the more storied players in a, in a storied program. Um I would just be reticent with him because of lack of head coaching experience at all, A, and B, at the college level, because I just it's a different animal. I'm not here to tell you he can't do it, but it's almost like a you talk about a risk-reward hire, right? Because chance to maybe hit a home run with a, with new blood, and the fact of the flip side is, uh, that, you know, this guy doesn't know what he's getting into. John does. I mean, John, John has done a great job, not just a good job at NKU, a great job at NKU, because you can you can kind of do what he did that that first year they were eligible for the tournament, right? You, you kind of caught lightning in a bottle. I mean, Wright State did that many, 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 many years ago when they transitioned from two to one, caught lightning in a bottle, and then really never sustained it. They've been a nice pro, but never sustained it, not over that period that, that NKU's done for three years now. Um, you know, he, he it, it's not like suddenly he went from Valdosta State as a head coach to NKU as a head coach. I mean, he was on Division One. High level division one, well, not high level, but high enough level staffs. I mean, yeah, Alabama they did a good job at VCU. Yeah, correct. Um, at Alabama, they didn't do a great job, but you certainly got high major SEC experience right. for what six years, right? And and sometimes, I, I you know I think sometimes we give the assistants too much credit just because they were on a great staff, and sometimes you you look and go, well, they didn't do a great job. Well, maybe he did, and maybe the head coach didn't. Yeah, I, I mean that's a possibility too. I always love the the, the hire the guy off the hot staff. Well, why? Maybe the head coach is just a freaking genius, and this guy's just along for the ride. I mean, honestly, I, right. I, you see that all the time in in, in every sport. Um, well, I think that's the big shame. But John's done it three straight years. He's done it. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you caught lighting about with one. You got and at NKU, it's kind of like you're trying to build for usually probably a class, right? Of okay, we got all the parts finally in place. I'll be honest. If John came in and went 500 for three years and started built like getting right. some better recruits, we would have all been fine with that. Right. Everyone at NKU would have been like, "Good job." That's, right. That's that's what we were hoping for when we made this move is that you'd be competitive and be able to win as much as you lost, and, essentially. And I know people can argue Drew McDonald was Dave Beasold's recruit, so let's be let's be perfectly 100%. honest there. He was Dave Beasold's recruit, but a lot of the other pieces are John's recruits. Yeah, I mean, and the way those guys have developed too, since I mean, they all get so much better so quickly. I, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me. I'm biased, obviously, when it comes to the NKU thing. So um, it's hard for me to look past John Brandon when you have him in Cincinnati. He family is important to him, and you know the rest of his family that's around him. So it'd be a big deal for all of them if he got to, I think, stay at home and make that major move up in his career while his 
parents get to come to every game still and, and they can still make it. And, and his brother is right around him who coaches and teach, well, was coaching, just right. retired, but um, is, is teaching at Walton Verona. And his daughters can go to Newcath where he went to high school if they want. I think all those things would be a big deal. I think he's the type of guy you could bring in and keep for another 10, 13, 15, whatever years like yeah. you did Mick and Bob Huggins. Yeah, and I would ask you, you know, I heard a caller on on, uh, on ESPN 1530 yesterday that wanted to uh, get, go get one of my assistants from Duke. Okay, okay. Come on, dude. Seriously? Because uh, John's name got brought up, obviously. I, I, I don't from that little school. No, dude, that's not how this works. Who do you think you're getting? I mean, yeah, you're getting a head coach with head coaching experience, A, who's proven he can win on a consistent basis, who in the NCAA tournament, his team didn't just go in and get beat 90-53 to 53 and be overmatched. They played for a while with Texas Tech, and two years before that, they played toe-to-toe with Kentucky. When that was a good Kentucky team. And the one year they didn't make the tournament, they won the league championship, so got to play in the NIT and played, not Louisville a great tough. Louisville team, but played Louisville tough yeah. at Louisville. So, I mean, I'm not so sure. What, what else do you think you're going to get? Yeah. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm not, I, I, that, that's a pretty, that's I a pretty that, nice hire. I think it could be a home run hire for them. I think it makes too much sense. And again, I'm biased. I understand that. I love what John did at NKU. Uh, I think he's going to be a really good coach, whoever ends up taking him away from NKU. And if not, then NKU will continue to just dominate the Horizon League. And that that's great. Um, but obviously, like I, I think you know, it, it's more interesting to look past who are the yes. other names yes. that okay. could be in the mix because John's not going to be the only guy that's interviewing for this Cincinnati job. I expect there will be at least a name or two that people are kind of surprised by that'll be like, oh, that's that's kind of maybe a, a name I wasn't expecting or came from from kind of out of nowhere. But the the names that make a lot of sense that you've heard come up I think if you want to go, this would be pretty different, and it would be probably seen as a little bit risky because he was involved with Bruce Pearl's staff at Tennessee when they got hit with sanctions. But Steve Forbes at East Tennessee State is a guy that I've always been a big fan of. I think he is he's known as a really good recruiter with a ton of connections. He's well-respected across basketball communities, both in college, AAU, JUCO, where he spent a lot of his career. He will, he will he, The thing I love about him he's is done he's— more than John Brandon. No, he hasn't. Well, he, he's got a very different career from no, John Brandon. No doubt. Um, and the one thing I will say is if you're trying to go away from what Mick was, which was very stubborn, I recruit to my system, you play my system, and we're going to do it my way, Steve Forbes is find whatever talent I can, however I have to do that, whether it's a Juco guy here, a transfer sit out from here, a grad transfer from here, and a hot freshman that we somehow plucked from here, and then he molds his game plan to that group of guys and goes with the best. And like some people don't like that. They'd rather have that system and that discipline that Mick brought. But if you want to go the opposite way, I think Steve Forbes does it in an opposite way, but he does it very well. I think he would crush it at UC. I think he would be a great hire if you went with Steve Forbes. If you want to go more like the Mick Cronin route, very similar to him, I think Earl Grant from Charleston would be an interesting name. Charleston, not as hot. You know, when they made the tournament a couple years right. ago, everyone was talking about him a little more. This year, you know, they still had a solid year. I think they finished third in their conference. Yeah, I think so. Um, one as good, but he's a guy that's very disciplined, okay. very defensive-oriented, slow the game down, get fouled a lot, don't shoot threes, take care of the basketball. So a lot like Mick Cronin. Those yeah. are two names I think are very interesting. And that's fine, but... But I can keep shooting that down and go, better than John Brandon? More accomplished than John Brandon? Oh, not at all. And that's where I think you have to go to with some of that. When people keep shooting down John Brandon, you go, wait a minute, does he accomplish more? It doesn't mean they're not better coaches, because again, that can sometimes be very subjective depending on your situation. Um, I think the interesting ones to me are if you start throwing the off the wall The outlier names. names. Well, let's talk about the outlier names, because I think there are they some had Mata's an outlier there. name, right? Yeah, what do you think about that? 
I there's no doubt he can coach. I mean, let's put that yeah. dude that two level two programs and done great things at Xavier and did he's a he's a very good basketball coach. I do wonder though about a year and a half into it, does the health stuff kick in again? And then suddenly you're dealing with that, and then you're dealing in three years of having to go do this again because you rolled the dice on that. I, I, that's terrible to say, but it just it's a fact. You have to factor that into the equation. Um, people brought it up. And Rick Pitino's it's funny to me, and I don't think they would do it. I think he would do it. Yeah. I, he wants to get back into coaching college basketball. Yeah, now he said he wants the St. John's job, but he needs an I, apology from the, well, <laughs> right. was it, the, uh, the FBI or something, yeah. something. He asked for an apology first. Yeah, because um, I was going to say, that that's obviously, that, that's got to be in play, right? I mean, that has to be in play. I don't think they will consider Rick Pitino seriously at UC. I think they should. Because I don't think anyone really cares about what you did in the past. I think media, or first of all, there's a lot of former coaches and people in the college basketball circles that love Rick Pitino that are already in media. So there, there's, I mean, Dick Vitale was on ESPN the other night pumping up how Rick Pitino should be coaching a team. So there's already going to be people defending you for making this hire. Then you're going to win a bunch because Rick Pitino is a damn good coach who will recruit at a very high level because parents don't really care Correct. about his sanctions either. And then everyone will forget it. And you know the only thing you'll hear? The redemption of Rick Pitino. It, I mean, it's no one can, we're past the point of people caring about what Rick Pitino did that was bad. So whoever brings him back will reap the benefits of it. The problem is I don't know who will have the gumption to do so. I don't think it's going to be UC, I, I, but I think yeah. it'd be a great hire. I, I think he he gets whatever if he gets another crack, it will be probably a power five program that is that has gone south and they've decided, look, we gotta do that. We I have mean UNLV or St. John's this. feel yes, like the right, situation. Right, it's kind of renegade right, programs right, already that right. don't seem to care about their image as much and like, Right. Yeah, that, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's and I'm I'm with you. Um yeah, I, John Brand just makes so much sense, and, and maybe maybe both of us are too close to the situation. But again, you, you bring up, keep bringing up names to me, and I'm just going to keep looking at you and going more accomplished, more accomplished, more accomplished. Not recent vintage. Yeah, I, I think um, another. This isn't necessarily off the wall because he's a name that's been kind of bandied about. I know we I talked to him a little bit. He wasn't really a factor, but he was a name I, I threw as a throw-in on my hot board last year when the Xavier job came open. It was Micro Shrewsbury, who's been on staff with Brad Stevens with the Celtics. I think he's a really sharp guy who knows the college game well, has a lot of recruiting contacts to where that's to me that's the concern. And even like a guy like Nick Van Exel. Yes, he's been coaching, and yes, he's shown he's willing to put in the work and use the discipline yes, yes. of being an NBA assistant and grinding through that. But the problem is like people want to compare him to Penny Hardaway because it's the hero coming home and he hasn't been, you know, Penny was coaching high school and AAU. Well, that's the difference. Penny was building up a pipeline in his state of guys he was going to be able to recruit and AAU contacts and getting getting to know right. the national grassroots and AAU shoe circuit. Nick Van Exel hasn't been doing that, so I would be really worried about his ability to recruit. Well, I mean, use the parallel of Pat Ewing, right? I mean, Pat Pat is iconic. I mean, kids probably still know Pat. All you have to do is go go to YouTube and yeah. watch Pat. And as their a parents player. don't, or the parents do if they don't. Yes, yeah. correct. Um, and Pat still might have success at Georgia. I mean, we're very early in the process, but it wasn't like Pat's come in and suddenly he's gotten a thousand great dudes and they're going to the NCAA tournament, right? right. I mean, he's he's kind of righted the ship from where it was and he's kind of got it on a little forward needle and maybe it takes a four, maybe it is a four or five year deal for Pat to get this thing right, but it wasn't an instantaneous. And Pat, kind of like Nick, Pat worked hard as an NBA assistant. That, he paid his mm -hmm. dues. He did all of those things, but just automatically going, well, it's Pat Ewing coaching at his alma mater. It's going to work. I hope it does. I hope it does for him because he's really put the time in to do it, but 
It's not like it's been an automatic home run. Yeah, he's grinded and he's put the work in, and his name is so big that it does have the cachet where it's going to bring guys. Nick Van Exel is a he, big no name. It brings some guys, but it's not quite not, Pat, not Ewing. Pat Ewing. Yes, correct. So, I mean, I don't know that he's going to get, especially in this day and age, it's, you know, maybe 10 years ago, a lot more so. Yeah. But now, yeah. a lot of kids probably don't know who Nick Van Exel is. You know, it's probably just some parents. No doubt. So, no doubt. I don't know that that's as, e- as easy of a sell from a recruiting perspective. Um, I don't know that there's any more off. Have there been any any other off the wall names that you've heard? I, I saw I saw Bryce Drew's name get thrown out there, and I just can't imagine you take a guy who just yeah. went winless in the SEC, even though he was coaching the SEC. I think that's a more realistic name than off it, the wall, but I don't think there's any way I would consider him personally. Yeah, okay, maybe maybe more realistic. Yeah, because he wall, would want the job, I'm sure. Yeah, I just don't know if you to sell him to the fam again. You gonna sell him over John Brandon uh, again? Over John Brandon? Hell no. That's the that's the thing. You just watched another coach from the Horizon League go and fail at a. A major yeah. He didn't win a game in the SEC this year. That's almost impossible. Case closed. At yeah. that point, I'm done. Yeah. I, I, I can't sell that that higher. The only other one we haven't mentioned that I think is a very legitimate possibility is Matt McMahon from Murray State. Yeah. Um, and, yes, you can say he did do more than John Brandon because he won an NCAA tournament game. So he did do do a little bit more. Um, he somehow convinced John Morant to go to Murray. Um, and, you know, obviously we saw the talent that he is and, and will be moving forward. Well, and think about the people that have come from Murray State. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, Mick Cronin came correct, from Murray State. Steve Crom came from Murray State. I mean, right. there's they've they've had some damn good coaches come out of Murray no, State. No UC's question. seen that firsthand. No question. It, it's been a great building block for, for a lot of coaches jobs so yes I can see him certainly being a candidate but um I don't know I just I rest on John and again it feels like it's just it almost feels like it's too easy and maybe that's the problem it just seems too logical too easy it does and I don't know that Mike Bone will like that yeah maybe not he doesn't seem to I mean he kind of went outside the box a little bit with Luke Fickle right going Fair for enough. an assistant um and if you're going that route I guess who I, Kenny Payne at UK maybe is a, a top assistant that you may look to that's regionally. I, I, I don't think that'd be the guy I'd like to hire if I'm making but no, that decision, but, yeah, but, but yeah. that's a similar name to Luke Fickle maybe Correct. if you're looking for that route. Yeah, off of a, off of, you know, a blue blood staff, and that's what Luke came from. So, yeah, I, 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 again, I just it just feels too easy. I would agree with you, but again, I, I feel like I'm certainly biased in that after just watching him all year, and yep. I don't know that UC's been watching him as closely. <laughs> Probably so. not. Although, it seems like they've had a decent idea of where this was headed since the fall. Yes, if, indeed. Uh, so maybe they've already dotted some eyes and crossed some T's. Skinny Kentucky is losing P.J. Washington, but holding on to Ashton Haggins. Yay. Washington announced Tuesday that he plans to enter the NBA draft and hire an agent. Hours later, Haggins said he will return for his sophomore season with the Wildcats. U.K. also added Bucknell grad transfer Nate Sestina. Sestina is a 6'9", 245-pound big man who averaged 15.8 points and 8.5 rebounds last year in the Patriot League. What do you make of Kentucky's offseason news so far? Well, P.J. Washington was automatic, right? I mean, that, yeah. that, that was a given. I guess there is some upside to Ashton Higgins, right? And we saw flashes of it. And, oh, and I think, yeah, I think unfortunately, is. the lasting memory is that last game when he was just dreadful in, in many ways. So that's, that's the unfortunate part. Yeah, he looked part. like a freshman guard. Correct. And, yeah. and so we, we don't allow that to breathe any longer, right? We don't allow the freshman guard to occasionally have freshman moments. Well, because, especially at UK, we don't. Correct. You know? At uh, other schools, he wouldn't be yeah, playing. Yeah, but right. At UK, right. it's like you're expected to be a one and done. Right. Um, Sestina is... is, is Probably a poor man's Reed Travis, right? I mean, he didn't put up the, the in a different league. Reed had far more production, but at Kentucky, you know, Reed was kind of a glueish guy more than anything else, and that feels like what what Nate Sestina can be is kind of that nine, ten point five six rebound a, a game guy. Maybe occasionally, if you got the right matchup, you can go to him in the post. 
um, because Pete in the last year PJ was the go-to post guy for for the most part. I, I don't mind it. I, I think it's a nice get. So I don't think he's a star. I agree with you that he's more of Reed Travis in terms of like the role he'll play, be more yeah. of a role guy. But the one thing I think that may make him a much better fit than Reed Travis, he's a thirty-nine percent yeah right, point shooter. Right, and Reed was completely um, on over, rooted on the block on over a hundred attempts last season. So he's a guy that may fit in a lot better with the athletic drivers, a guy like Ashton Haggins, you know. And obviously, I think a lot of this offseason and how you feel about it for UK is going to be dictated by what do Keldon Johnson and Tyler Hero do. And I think it's probably likely they're going to end up in the draft because they're probably both going to be first rounders. No, I I just. I, I could see Tyler Hero's stock sliding out of the first round. For me, Tyler Hero, I think, is almost a lottery pick at this point. I thought he. You mean Kelton sh- Johnson? You said Tyler Hero's a lottery pick. You meant Kelton Johnson? No, I think Tyler Hero Do is you potentially really? a lottery pick. I think Kelton Johnson could be sliding this out year? of the first round. Yes. Oh, I think vice versa. See, I think I think I Tyler, think Tyler Hero, Hero shows that he, had a, he has a hard time creating his own stuff. See, a really hard time. I think he raised his stock because in the NBA, they're looking at him as a 3 and D wing who's going to be a guy off the bench. And I think he showed, one, he defends he much better than defend I expected and uses length. Um, and two, he can he can really shoot it. I mean, uh, not on a consistent basis. Not, I mean, again, you're worried about him for creating it for him. At, uh, yeah, in Kentucky, but, he had to do that. In the NBA, he's going to be more of a spot shooter. Correct. But even as a spot shooter, there were lots of moments of inconsistency for that cat. Fair enough. I think Keldon Johnson's sliding, but I think it's going to be difficult to convince either one of them to come back next year. So it's going to leave him in an interesting spot because on one hand, I think one great thing about P.J. Washington is he may have just kind of paved that two-and-done model yes, right. out for guys because it worked flawlessly, as perfect as it could have for Cal and the program to tell a kid, hey, you can really turn yourself into a lottery-type player instead of a second-rounder if you come back for that second year, and it worked and, and, absolutely to a T. And you can stop going to class then, too. <laughs> my, my daughter says she's not seen PJ in stats class since Valentine's Day. Well, that's a year longer than most of them attend I, class. Exactly right. So I think that's pretty good for the old APR. I, I, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah, and then, I mean, obviously you have the big freshman class coming in. A lot of talented guys, but again, you're relying on freshmen to fit them in. So I think the one thing is you have all these upperclassmen in the post now. You add Sestina. Right. You've got uh, EJ Montgomery. You've got Nick Richards. Nick Richards. So you've got some experience and size in the post. I think with Haggins coming back, you've got a guy who can definitely defend at an elite level at the point guard position. And then you add a guy like Tyrese Maxey, who's maybe a little more explosive and scoring-minded next to him. I, it's an interesting roster they're forming together for next year. Well, season. right or wrong, uh, and this always happens, one of the Las Vegas sports books, as soon as the NCAA championship game comes out with their odds, an online sports book came out with theirs. The online book made Kentucky next year's preseason favorite to win it all already, and the the other sports book made, I'm drawing a blank, might have made Virginia the, the preseason favorite to win it all next year. I think the Caesars Palace one. So. Yeah. I, I mean, it's with Kentucky, it's impossible to do. Really, for all of those teams, it's impossible to do because Correct. you don't know what Kentucky and Duke are going to look like. Yeah, I don't, exactly. know if, I don't know if the online one made it thinking that P.J. Washington was coming back because they actually made those I mean, it couldn't have been. There's no I would way think they, they wouldn't, but, that. I mean, to make them a preseason favorite with all those question marks? It's an interesting yeah. – but, again, I mean, when you're bringing in the number two recruiting class yeah. and you actually have a couple guys coming back and – some guys have been in the program. They're upperclassmen now. And, so, you, and I mean, you had another grad transfer. And I, I thought the addition of Reed Travis was positive. I thought, for I thought it was a great addition yeah. for him. It was it was a nice role player for what they need, and he accepted his role. I think Sestino will do the same thing, but maybe be an even Different better guy. Fit. Yeah, right. Yeah. All right, Skinny. After becoming the first number one seed to lose to a 16 seed in last year's men's NCAA tournament, Virginia defeated Texas Tech 85-77 in overtime for the university's first national basketball championship Monday night. Kyle Guy scored 24 points and was named the tournament's most outstanding player. 
What was your takeaway from Monday night's national championship game? Oh, it was a fun game, A. I think B... Were you surprised by how fun it was? I was. I thought it was going to be awful. Yeah, because it went through about a five-minute stretch where it felt like the under was such a lock, right? The first the, eight minutes were terrible. Yeah, first eight minutes were awful. Then there was a stretch in the second half where they were trading buckets for five minutes. Literally just trading buckets. And these aren't bucket-trading teams. No. <laughs> I mean... Guy, it, the shot-making picked up in a big, big way time. about ten minutes big in. Time and, it, and it continued the rest of the way. But I, but I do think, and if you go metrically, Texas Tech metrically was not elite offensive they were good i mean they were top i don't know i don't even look where they finished in ken palm i'm guessing based on their tournament success probably top 30 right i think it was like 28th or okay something. yeah okay yeah. and virginia though all year they were they were in the metrics of the top elite offenses so i think it's even though people talk about well they finally got two defensive teams virginia was still metrically really good offensively and they showed in the tournament that when some of those guys had to make shots no pun intended because one of them was a guy um, they, they had dudes that could do it. I mean, DeAndre Hunter's a high-level player. Kyle Guy's a high-level shot maker. Jerome's a great, perfect glue guy. And then they had the bigs around them that were just role-playing guys that, that that's all they needed to do, be pick-setters and garbage bucket-getters and, and do all the dirty stuff. So, you know, I guess good for Tony Bennett that he stuck to his guns, although maybe you can argue offensively he loosened the reins a little bit based on the metrics. Um, knowing that, look, I got, I, we're going to get stops. I'm going to let them do some more things on offense. Yeah, they walk it up. I, I'm not, I'm not even opposed to walking it up. I'm just I, the only thing I would say is, as long as if you're going to walk it up, it, the first good shot you get, let her fly. Okay, that's fine. You want to walk it up? Great. Hell, Villanova walked it up, right? Yeah. Yeah, I always love their style because they get a defensive rebound. And you walk, you watch five guys walk up the floor, and all of a sudden it'd be action, action, jump shot, good. Yeah, holy Quick, cow! Quickest three we can find. We're still jacking. <laughs> Correct. It. Yeah, but it was almost like they were. They, it almost like the plan was: look, dude, you're not going to need to run needlessly. We're not going to just run to run. If we get a defensive rebound and they're falling back, just walk yourself up the floor. But as soon as we get in our actions, man, go and get the first good look you can get. And it felt like Virginia. He let them do that more. Yep, and that's that's the biggest difference. By the way, Virginia ranked uh, second in offensive efficiency, fifth in defensive efficiency by the end of the year. Um, obviously, I think it was better than that at, at one point. But Texas Tech was 25th in offensive efficiency and first in defensive efficiency. All I'm going to tell you is go back. Ken Palm goes back to, I believe, 2002, right, where you can look back at records. Yep. You go back and look, and I'll bet you – so this would be, what, the 17th or 18th champion since then. I'll be willing to bet you, because I did the research a couple years ago, that that at least 12, if not 13 of the champions, the last 18 champions since Ken Palm finished in the top five in offensive efficiency. I will be willing to bet you. So if you want to look at metrics, it's still a metric to look at. Yeah, and the one outlier, in fact, probably almost all of them were in the top 10. The one outlier was that UConn team um, that beat Kentucky. Yeah, so because they were awful most of the year and then just hit d- an correct, insanely correct, hot streak correct. at the end of the year. Um, going back to Virginia and the offense that you talked about, they absolutely changed things up in a big way. And I think that was my biggest takeaway because obviously, look, like, I, I was wrong about Virginia, right? We've are, we've we gone back were. and forth for a couple years, and I, I said I don't take them seriously. But like, you, it's a prove-it world. Prove it to me. You haven't proven it to me yet. Now you did. Right. And, and I th- again, I still... I still believe in what I've said for the most part. I don't. It's not so much that I don't believe in coaches that slow it down. It gets boiled down to that a lot because we're on a podcast and we're all trading points. Sure. We're talking quickly, but really, what it is is I hate coaches that are stubborn and won't take advantage of opportunities, whether that be easy opportunities to score when you've got an opportunity to attack, when you're throwing up the ten sign, telling your guys to yeah. slow it down, hold it up when you could have had an easy bucket. I don't like that. When you're over micromanaging every possession, when you're not giving your team enough weapons, enough options on the offensive end, even though you have the talent to do so. 
I felt that was something that Tony Bennett really struggled with in the past, specifically last year. That blocker mover mover offense that they ran where it's basically um, you look a lot more like Wisconsin, essentially. Right. I mean, I know Wisconsin runs the flex and not blocker mover, but essentially that's what you're doing. You're reading, you're reacting, you're taking tons of time off the clock, you're looking for backdoor cuts, stuff like that. This year, he switched it up, and Rob Doster wrote a great piece about this um, on NBC Sports. I know some other people wrote about it as well, but he talked a lot in the postseason about him coming back in the offseason saying, okay, I can't be stubborn anymore. I've got to change what I do. And yes, I've got a ton of talent, and yes, I've got a bunch of parts that fit together well, but I've got to let these guys make more plays. And so he went to a ball screen continuity offense, which is we've seen Xavier run it a lot uh, during Chris Mack's tenure. And it's essentially... The the idea was just give, like you said, more freedom to two or three guys as opposed to the blocker mover where you're trying to say, we're trying to get at this guy. In this spot to shoot this shot. And we're being super disciplined about how we read and react off all this stuff and it's taking all the time off the clock. It's no more of that. Well, it's sometimes that. They still run that some, but also they have this other weapon where if things are getting stagnant, they'll go, they'll open things up a little more. They'll let their guys make some play. They'll let Kyle Guy be Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome be Ty Jerome and, and Hunter be DeAndre Hunter be DeAndre Hunter. All the, that was the difference to me, is he quit being stubborn and said, I'm going to give my guys more options because what you need in the tournament to win six games in a row against good teams who all play different styles right. is to be flexible and be that's able just to adjust. It. Your style may be one way, but you're playing all these different styles, so you better be able to adjust to that. Yeah, and that's, Look, you can have a philosophy and you can have a have principles and all of those things, but exactly. you, you better be able to adjust. Have a change of pace. Be willing to say... We do what we do, and we're going to force them to play our style for the most part. But sometimes matchups just dictate that we do something a little different. Or maybe not even the matchups, but maybe we're just having a bad day. And our stagnant offense isn't working. We need to run something else. And I think sometimes coaches are too stubborn to go away from that. And Tony Bennett, in my opinion, had always been one of those guys. That he was just going to say, we're going to do our system and keep it that way hell or high water, this year he didn't do that, and they won a national championship, and I think it made all the difference. Yeah, I'm just a big believer. First good shot, let it fly. First good shot, let it go. That may be a 25-foot three coming off of the screen. You caught it, you can shoot it from that range, let her fly. Um, Yeah, I mean, obviously I coach in high school where there's no shot clock, right? I mean, if I'm protecting a five-point lead with two minutes to go, I may play, hey, only layups and free throws. But up until that point, it's going to be, you got a good shot, let her go, man. Let, 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 let Let it fly. Um, and I think you saw some of that with them, and and good, good for him to win it because I've always thought I I, I just like I like to watch Tony Bennett. Co- I just think he does a really good job, and he's done it at Virginia, which has had pockets of success here and there. He did it at Washington State. I mean, the guy the guy knows how to coach, and and this this was kind of validation for him. Yeah, and I think on the flip side, I think I've been nothing but you impressed Chris with Beard, yeah. what Chris Beard has done. And in the same way with him, his offense wasn't nearly as good, but he wasn't nearly as talented. The one thing that this this year also proved is it doesn't necessarily matter what style you run. You just better have talent. Virginia's loaded. All those dudes are top 100 yeah. recruits. Like, a lot of them were top 50. So the, that was a really talented group. It wasn't a bunch of, like, under-the-radar guys playing a tough style. Right. They were really talented dudes playing that disciplined style. So if you have the talent, it'll work out. I didn't think Chris Beard's talent was quite as good. His team is very disciplined, too. But the one thing I just think he is exceptional at is his feel for his team and the matchups and what's going on in the court. I think in-game he is an excellent tactician, just calling plays from the sideline and, and picking his spots for what to run when and out of timeouts, all that stuff. I thought he was just on fire all turns. Yeah, and I, and I told you, I mean, the, the good thing for him is you backed up the Elite Eight with this, so he doesn't feel his flavor of the month. I mean, oh, Chris, Beard, Chris Beard was very much talked about after the Elite Eight run last year, and then they had some success in the regular season, not, you know, 
they weren't great, great. They were very good. Yeah. In a in a not a, not so good league this year. Um. You know, flamed out very quickly in the in the Big Twelve tournament, as I as I recall, against an awful West Virginia team. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. Um. So yeah, if he had somehow gotten bounced in the second round and his name was still hot, I go, eh, feels flavor of the month. You you've backed it up now. Not oh. not just make look flavor of the month. Sometimes is a guy that goes to a Sweet Sixteen two years in a row, and suddenly, hey, that guy, he sees he's. he's this guy went to an Elite Eight and a championship game and was a was a lucky player two away from maybe winning the damn thing. After I, I, losing I, seven of his top eight. Correct, correct. I mean, I was on a, on a radio, I do a, a radio segment in Lexington every every Monday. It's a quick five minutes, and the guy asked me who I liked. I said, I said I'm picking Virginia only because it doesn't feel like I can ever call Texas Tech a national champion. That just doesn't seem logical to me so to wrap my head around that, that I'm going to call Texas Tech. I said, I have no logic other than the fact that I think Virginia at least feels like it can be a national champion. I can wrap my it, head around that. It felt so weird to even say those two teams were playing for a national championship. Yeah, Virginia less so than than, than Texas Tech for See, sure. I think it felt weird too, even for Virginia. But um, I wanted to ask you about the replay. We obviously had it come up again at the end of this game. And the one situation that I don't know that we've kind of broken down before is what we saw with that Ty Jerome. The ball gets swiped, knocked out of his hands completely sideways after what looked to be a foul that wasn't called. They go to the replay because Virginia players are saying, no, it's off of him. And then you see on replay, the ball clearly gets slapped out of bounds by a Virginia player. But as it's getting slapped, it looks like it may have grazed Ty Jerome's pinky on the way out. So technically, it's out on him. I didn't think it was enough to overturn it. I didn't either. The ref said it was. And I think technically, they were right. Ty Jerome's pinky... And I, uh, I it looked like a slight redirection. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm saying yeah, Jerome, it was Moretti the, yeah, from right, Texas yeah. Tech. I'm sorry. Yeah, and it looked like it changed directions just a hair, just a hair. But you can do that sometimes too, where the shadows. That's why I think everybody thinks the replay is the be all end all. Well, there are some weird things when you look at replays that aren't quite always what they seem to be. I think he definitely touched it. But the problem is, one, we all understand. I know Russ will tell you it doesn't exist, but the idea of like the makeup call, right? And I'm not saying that's what that was, but you miss an obvious foul, but the ball gets knocked out of bounds. You just kind of say, well, it's your ball. You know, I mean, right. like we, we didn't call that. It's your ball. Just play on type of deal. So t- t- the replay, taking it this literally, takes away that, that opportunity for refs. Um, and maybe that's okay. But this one is where... I don't technically maybe it did graze his pinky last, but in the spirit of the game, when you come out and you slap a ball sideways out of someone when they're dribbling it, that's out on you. We all know that's out on you. It's just the spirit of how the game goes. That can't be out on the guy handling the ball. You can't call that out on Moretti. But at the same time, you're, I, you're a replay guy. I, I totally understand. You get in a situation. I'm not a replay guy. There's the problem is there's no perfect answer. Correct. Right. There's there's problems either way, and and you can't tell them. Well, use common sense in that situation because then if you start adding gray area into the replay, you're just back to where you started with judgment calls. So just do away with the whole thing. So I will. I still say do away I, with the whole thing. You say I want replay. But that was maybe the most unfortunate usage of it that I can read. All right. I, I'm, I'm going to the do away with it campaign. <laughs> I, I know that. <laughs> Skinny, the Reds snapped an eight-game losing streak on Tuesday with a 14-0 drubbing of the Miami Marlins. The win moved the Reds' record to a staggering 2-8 and eight overall now. Is it time to panic already? No. And I said that on Sunday Night on the Sports Authority before they put this 14-0 drubbing on because of a couple things. I, I think all along this team's going to hit. I mean, there's just too many guys that have done it at the big league level. Now, you can argue Jesse Winker did it for two months, and maybe that's not a huge sample size. You can tell me that Matt Kemp is on the downside of his career. I can buy some of that. Um, but for the most part, 
these guys are going they're going to score runs. I think the other strength of this team is the bullpen, and you've had some bullpen hiccups, especially Rizel Iglesias. And maybe maybe he doesn't like being used for multiple innings, or maybe it's just an anomaly that, that the other day, look, the way he had to be used, the Reds needed to use him for the third inning, and they just finally scratched out a run on him when he was dominant for the first two innings leading into it. So I think the, the two things I thought were going to work for this team just didn't. And it's glaring when you start the season because you look one for if you're batting 297 in July and you go one for 20, your average goes down to about 283, and no one really notices. You notice a little bit when you start one for 20 and your batting average says .050. That's glaring, right? Yep. And unfortunately, five of them had done that, and so it all was was glaring. Um, no, because I think this team's going to score. I think the bullpen is going to be good. I think the positive is. You now have gotten three stupidly good starts from Luis Castillo. Yeah, if he you, could just pitch every game, they'd be great. Correct. Well, Sonny Gray had a great bounce back start. Tana Roark hasn't pitched great so far. Di Sclafani is what he is. He's going to give you probably two good starts, one ass start. They need Alex Wood back because he gives you a fourth legitimate starting pitcher. So, no, I, I, I get fans. I get the reaction to it because here we go again, 90 lost season, and maybe it does trend that. I just don't see it. I think this is still – I think the things that I thought were going to work – will eventually work. I think I'm more positive. I'm more excited that, hey, I'm actually now watching it on a nightly basis, legitimate starting pitching. And if the legitimate starting pitching continues, and again, we're very early into the season, I think the other things absolutely come around. And you all of a sudden have a pretty solid ball club on your hands. Yeah, I think your point is the right one from the optimistic perspective, that the strengths of this team were expected to be the offense, where they thought there were too many good hitters that they couldn't get them all out there. Right. And now none of them, no, they right. can't find anyone to get on base. And the relief pitching. I thought they legitimately had a really good bullpen. And I still no think they do. Misfit toys and right. guys that right. were starters that didn't work out. It looked like this is a pretty talented group of deep, young, a good mix of guys who know how to pitch, but also some young talent. And a, and lot. a mix of lefties and righties. Yeah, just it seemed like it had a little bit of everything. I was high on the bullpen coming in. Both of those things have been awful. So I think you're right that it's it's good that your strengths w- were expected to be the strengths of this team are the parts that aren't working out. Because right. the starting pitching, that was the bigger question mark. You didn't know that you were going to get any type of starting pitching this year, even after you made those moves. Yeah, you were hoping, still, right? Yeah. You were hoping, but yeah. there were still a lot of question marks. I think everyone felt a lot more comfortable about the offense and, and the relief pitching. Um, at the same time, if the Reds, I, I know it's just 10 games. I know it's just 2-8. and eight. But if the Reds go 8-7 and seven over their next 15 games, that would put them in the company of the teams with the worst starts to ever make the playoffs. I don't feel good about them going 8-7 and seven over the next 15. They have to play one game better than 500 over their next 15 to make them just in the conversation for the worst starts ever to make the playoffs. I, I mean, that, that that's not very good odds. If this team gets to that point... You, you're 10 and 15, you're pretty why, much out of the why can't they go? Why, why can't they go 10 and 5 in the next 15 games? Why can't they do that? Then you're 12 and 13. Because they've gone 2 and 8 to start. Well, but again, you had guys whose back of the ball, baseball cards say they're going to hit who didn't hit. Who Maybe maybe all it took was, was the game on Tuesday, the 14-0 game, to go, look, we can do this. We're good. We, we, we know. We, we Okay, we finally, we can do this. I think I think a lot of it, guys, were probably. I, mean, I think you got about three losses into this season, and all of a sudden, guys were squeezing that baseball bat and grinding sawdust out of it. And then it got to a shutout, and another shutout, and another shutout, and it just it it manifested. Maybe the best thing that happened was that damn fight. On I was Sunday. just going to say the best thing that happened. Puig sacrificed himself to get the rest of the team going. That's the kind of guy he, he was. Is. Like, look, I'll take on the entire Pirates organization. 
I'll take them all on. Just to get the best. Right, let me ask you, because I'm, I'm, I'm old school, but I also don't, I, I think some of that stuff just gets silly to me. It's all silly. It's dumb. All right, so, so how do you, how baseball do we, fights are the worst. How, how do we start policing? How does baseball start to police this? I, I think there's a simple solution, to be honest with you. What, just ban them all? I mean, no, suspend them all? No one comes off. You come off the bench, you're spending five Same as every games. other sport. Absolutely. Yeah, that, it's just, very just make easy. It simple. Make it but simple. The problem is, baseball guys are old guys who like to talk about the tradition and the unwritten rules of their game. It's the whole reason guys throw at each other after pimping home runs in the first place. I will give Chris Archer this. The one thing I'll give him credit for, I won't give him credit for much because— That he didn't hit him? him? Him dancing off the mound. No, that he actually went after the same guy. I, I don't like when—, when Agreed. Dude hits home run, and next guy's the guy that takes the beating for it. Like, what the hell did he do? He's just standing in the on-deck circle. Yeah. I do like the fact that he was man enough to sit there and go, I'll wait until you come back up again, and then I'll throw at you. Yeah, it's also- And he didn't go at his head. He went at his thigh, and yeah, he threw behind him, which is the most dangerous thing because that's your natural inclination is to step back, so you're, in theory, stepping back into where the pitch is going. But he threw at his thigh. I still don't believe in any of that crap. I think it's all nonsense. It doesn't really You know what? How about getting even by striking him out the next time? Or- that- that's the thing. It's just like, why don't you just K him up? And why is it only pitchers that can do that? Well, as a hitter, and Chris Archer's one of he'd love to dance off the mound, right? That's okay. Look, he wants to do that. That's fine. It's, I think it's sophomore, but that's how he gets his jollies and the kids like it. That That's all good. Why can't I, as a batter, next time up, throw my bat at him? <laughs> well, because that's the thing. Batters try to take you yard next time up. Yeah. Like, that's the whole thing as pitchers. I, I never understood the wanting to hit the guy. Like, if he hurt you physically at some point in your career, I get trying to take him out. I did that in high school. Dude slid into me, broke my leg. I hit him four of the next six times I faced him and walked him on four with, pitches with, the other with, two with times. 59-mile-an-hour fastball. Yeah, he was very, very worried about it. I think he just watched it bounce off and then trotted down to first. He caught it one time. <laughs> but I never understood that, like, Try, a guy hits a home run off you, so next time you're going to put him on base two? It's like, yeah, no, get even by striking him out. Right. And I, look, I think there is a thing to a brushback pitch, and if a guy you know is cr- hanging over the plate and you're trying to throw outside, I get yeah, that. strategy, That's strategy, exactly. Yeah, it's not Th- my think, feelings were hurt because yeah, you pimped your home run. This is nonsense. And baseball can stop it. I mean, you really can. You just simply Easily. say, the only people that can come out of that dugout are manager and coaches to defuse the situation. Anybody else that comes off of that bench, it's an automatic five-game suspension. And guess what? If it's all 25 of you that come off that bench, or 23, whatever, guess what? Your whole team's suspended. But baseball guy doesn't want that skin. He wants these arguments. He wants to argue about their unwritten rules and the code of baseball. I'm a baseball guy. No, you're not, unfortunately. You just act like that when it comes to charges. Yeah, maybe. Skinny in a bombshell that sent shockwaves through the Los Angeles Lakers organization and the NBA as a whole, a teary-eyed Magic Johnson announced Tuesday night that he is stepping down after just two years as the team's president of basketball operations. Johnson said he had not informed owner Jeannie Buss or general manager Rob Palink of his decision before talking to reporters because he was afraid that Buss would have talked him out of it. Following Magic Johnson's announcement, do you think the Lakers are a total dumpster fire at this point, or are they still in good shape with LeBron in the fold for three more years? I think they're a complete dumpster fire. I really do. I, I heard an argument um, on ESPN Radio um, as I was driving in to do the podcast this morning that it's still an iconic franchise and players still want to go there. Do they? Do they? And, and, and I mean, we'll see this offseason, won't we? And in this, yeah, exactly. And I would have thought Magic could have helped facilitate that. Now, look, Magic. It sounds like didn't work very hard at this job. I mean, he just didn't. It was kind of a he was kind of a figurehead. It's face of the franchise. All of those things. Um, but there's obviously was a power struggle here, right? And who was the big winner? Who's the big winner? 
LeBron's the big winner. So LeBron Always. got to, So why just make him the de facto? Although, don't you make him the de facto. Make him on. the, the, the is, GM. Is LeBron the big winner, though? Because LeBron wanted Luke Walton out from everything we've heard. I, and it, it seems like Magic Johnson well, is stepping that, down to avoid the fact of he needed to fire Luke Walton I, and Bus wants Walton in place. The story that, was, that went was apparently, I guess, the, the Lakers coaches were standing with Portland coaches and said, said yeah, we're probably going to get fired after this game, blah, blah, blah. And they said, wait a minute. And they, I guess it popped up on their screen that Magic quit. Maybe you're not. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> And uh, it does seem like they have to fire Luke Walton, probably. But Jeannie Buss is going to bat. She for loves, him. yeah, she it loves. It now Luke seems Walton. a power struggle between LeBron James and Jeannie Buss. Right. Well, and if I'm Magic Johnson, I certainly don't want to be in the middle of that. What was it? I, 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 if you saw the press conference or parts of it, I can't remember if he said, "I'm either I'm free or I can breathe." It was one of those two things. I, well, I liked the quote. I want to go back to having fun. I want to go back to being who I was before taking on the job. Which, by the way, this is the whole reason you never hire a guy like Magic Johnson Correct. for this type of job. And it kind of goes back to hiring like the former NBA player star right. to be your new head coach, like Chris Mullen at St. John's. If you're not a grinder in those types of positions. You're not going to work out. You're That's not correct. going to outwork those other guys who are just grinding at that same job. And the problem is, if you've got a billion dollars in the bank, like Magic Johnson does, you're not going to grind the way other correct. dudes grind. You got other business. You got yeah, a ton of other business. Your life too. can't be as good as Magic Johnson's, and then you go do something like being right. a GM. That's too hard of work for a guy who has life that great. Correct. His quote is the most accurate quote I've heard. It's yeah. like, yeah, and that's why I don't think. The, the Lakers may be a dumpster fire. I'm not saying they're not, but this move doesn't signify that because no, I, this was I, I, never I, I the right they, fit. I thought they were because a they did I mean, the pieces they put around LeBron were just ridiculous. I mean, you you and they've got some young talent that are still developing, some, but, but they need the next level of free agents, and that this offseason dictates everything for correct, the Lakers. They, they have to bring in. Probably two big free agents, yes. but at least one star to go with LeBron to if give them a chance. You're suddenly now looking at 36 year old LeBron James and people going, "That's it, yeah, that's, that's, it's it." And I think you had to get rid of Magic Johnson before this offseason for that exact reason. So I don't think this. And again, they didn't get rid of Magic Johnson; he got rid of he got himself. Rid of himself yeah. But I, I think that was the right thing to do. We made it easy on everybody, and I think this is actually a good thing for them going into a very, very important offseason. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if Rob Palinka is the guy to lead them in that direction, or if you have to go somewhere else to get a, a GM that is going to grind and is going to be able to do those things. And maybe that guy's LeBron James. <laughs> we will see. Skinny Christiana Bush, an employee in the bakery department at a grocery store in Massachusetts, posted on Facebook that she saw an older woman in a Victorian-era nightgown and hair cap standing oh, in the no. frozen food aisle. Oh, no. Bush looked down, and when she looked back up, she said the woman had disappeared. Quote, she looked kind of like melancholy and a little angry, so it was kind of a creepy kind of sense, but it was something, Bush said. She searched up and down the aisles to find the woman, but Bush said she was nowhere to be found. She believes the woman was a ghost and asked the Facebook group whether anyone else had had a paranormal experience in her store. The post attracted plenty of attention from both believers and skeptics, but others also claimed to have seen something ghastly in the grocery store, and it soon became the talk of the town. My question for you is this. Would a grocery store be on like your top five places to haunt if you were a ghost? No doubt. That's a great move by the ghost, uh, absolutely. right? Absolutely. I mean, ghosts got to eat, right? I I don't know. Do they? That's like another thing we've got to uncover about ghosts. I'm I don't say, know how that I'm works. Say, do you ghosts think ghosts eat. do eat? In a related story, though, Christiana Bush, they also found a bunch of missing mushrooms out of the out of the uh, out of the, uh, <laughs> the produce section. Well, she 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 works in the bakery department, so I'm guessing she was making special brownies or something. Exactly. Yeah, nature. a little hashish. Yeah. yeah, a little hashish baked into it. Um, ghosts got to eat. I almost say ghosts got to eat. Ghost got to eat. Where would where would be like your top spot to haunt? Do you think if you were a ghost, where would you want to like be? This is the spot where I'm just going to scare the hell out of people and hang out. Delhi, man. 
No question the deli. Cause you, well, I'm not saying it doesn't oh, have to. Haunt? It, no, it doesn't necessarily have to be in a grocery right. store. I'm saying oh, anywhere. Because oh, any, grocery store is a pretty good place. I think we already Dude, agreed with that. Roller coaster. You already got some people with their hearts pounding on a roller coaster, man. If I stand up at you're at the top of that roller coaster and I show myself, you you would have to pee your pants, Well, right? the entire uh, theme park would be pretty good in yes, general. It would be. be like yes. uh, the Halloween haunt at King's that, Island, that, but exactly. no one would be expecting it. Exactly. Is that, that, that to me is one, too. That is a pretty air, good one. A lot air, of entertainment. Airplane, too, because you got a lot of anxiety on the airplane. You got a lot of people that just don't want to be on that airplane. Not a lot, but you got enough. Yeah, you but got enough. Be, be, Cooped up in the airplane all right, the whole time. Right, but if you saw it, I mean, no, no, dude, you'd be flying across the country. You'd be going to different places. But how does that work for, we still haven't figured that out. As a ghost, do you get to like get in cars and travel and airplanes and travel and then get out and explore when you get there? Or do you have to like, are you stuck to a place? I think you're or stuck, are there different ghosts for a good question. different folks? I'm going to guess you're stuck to a place. That's kind of how I felt it was, but we've also heard the story about the lady who dr- drove to the Motel 6 right. and the ghost followed her and haunted her at the Motel 6. So maybe, I mean, if you can travel, a, an airport would be a great place. No question. To like get on planes, Correct. go to another country, and then come back. I want to go to Vegas today. Today I'm going to go to New Orleans. It's Mardi Gras season. We're yeah. going to New Orleans. I feel like maybe you, just, as a ghost, you should, the r- rules of ghosting should be that you have a home base that you have to adhere to, but you can go other places, and then you always have to return within like a set number of time. You get, time, you like get 10 weeks vacation. Month. You get yeah. 10. <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. Ghosts should get vacation. Yeah, 10 weeks vacation. I agree with that. You, you, you got to haunt your place for whatever, and then you get 10 weeks vacation. I think a Vegas sports book would be the place to go. To haunt? Yeah, because... But uh, it beats too... T- I can't play. But, well, I mean, but theoretically, you'd have entertainment, right? You, you get to watch the games. You get to see, like, the lines you can... In your head, you could bet with your ghost friends, maybe, if that works. That's a good call. I don't know how you go with that, but, like, you, there's entertainment there. It's something to keep you busy. But then you've also got these dudes who are just losing their mind. And, like, think about a guy who's just had the worst day. He's just down because he lost a ton of money. You can just go scare the hell out of him in the bathroom. Totally change his mindset. He was worried about money and losing bets. Now he's seen a freaking ghost. I wish I had the specific details. You may have seen this. Speaking of which, I, we're going off topic of the ghost part of it. The guy that had the futures bet on Texas three hundred thousand dollars and didn't hedge it. Didn't he? He did not hedge. So I was did wondering. Not if he did, hedge it. Somebody actually. I guess you could sell your props. I don't know where he was offered sixty thousand for that before the yeah, game. Who was it? it Des Bryant or there was an athlete who offered him. Oh, did they really? Fifty-six thousand, I think. Okay, for yeah, it, and then someone else number. offered him fifty something. Yeah, dude, how you don't hedge that is beyond me. Uh, how do you? Yet yeah, why didn't you hedge it on your own? Even what, if you didn't what, want to sell what it. What was the bet? What, what did he put down? Ten grand to win. Were they, no, I thought no. it was three hundred, or was it to win three hundred thousand? I thought he put down. The no, bet I, for no, I think it was to win three hundred. Okay, I think it was to win three hundred. So I don't know whatever what, it was. It was a futures was, bet. Yeah, yeah, maybe twelve hundred something like that. It was, dude, yeah. go put five grand, put put twenty grand down to hedge your bet. Put fifty grand down to hedge yeah, your bet. When you get into that, of course, I mean that wasn't like an insane bet to make. So you have to think like this guy has money, but not like. Stupid, insane but money, that's right? The, that's the yeah, right. But my, my then that's like my three hundred thousand dollars is still a lot of money. To this okay, guy, yeah. If you I put fifty think. grand on the money line, or even just I wouldn't have done the one and a half. I would have done the the money line because it wasn't going to be very much on Virginia. You're at least getting fifty grand, and if you lose that wager, you're getting the difference of two hundred and fifty. Whatever, however much you wanted to put, you got to get something back. Yeah, I would think that's. I'd vomit the fact that game went into overtime, and the fact the way it ended, I would have oh. Of course, and I think I'm not sure I get up the next morning. I mean, if you've got an insane amount of money to where it's just the thrill of saying, "Hey, I did I it," guess. I get it. Maybe that's it. But I would think if you made that type of bet, three hundred thousand dollars is still kind of not maybe life changing money for you, but still a huge chunk of money to where you've got to hedge it. I'd be heading to ghost. I mean, you're not Floyd day. Money Mayweather at that point, Correct. where you're making Correct. half million Silly dollar yeah. bets or something. Yeah. Ooh, man. I'd, I'd be a ghost at that point in the game, for goodness <laughs> sakes. All right, Rick and Joy, as always, we will be back 
one week from today with another podcast, the Pope Edition. It's been the Skinny Podcast. For Rick Boring, I'm Richard Skinner. This has been the Skinny Podcast presented by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati.